Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Thanks so much for being here with us this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And I gotta say, guys, I'm really pumped to be here with you this morning and to be continuing in this conversation that we started about, oh, four, maybe five weeks ago. Uh, This series that we have been in called You Are Here. And I gotta just admit to you right off the bat that I love this series because I am a self-professed Bible nerd, okay? I'm a Bible geek, and you can even ask my friends, my families, those who love me, they would agree with you. They might actually say we should remove the word Bible from what they call me and just call me a geek or a nerd. But nevertheless, like I am really, yeah, did I get a woo on that? That was pretty exceptional. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, another one. Hey, how about a chorus of woos? That'd be great. Now, in all seriousness. Now, uh, again, I'm really jazzed. This is great. I love it. 9.15, you guys are showing up this morning. It's awesome. So I'm jazzed about this because as a Bible nerd, man, I love this idea that we're doing in this series about kind of lifting ourselves out of the individual story units of the Bible and kind of pulling ourselves out, zooming out, and we're looking at the whole meta-narrative that the entire Bible is telling from cover to cover, from start to finish, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That's what we're doing in the series, You Are Here. But specifically, what we've been doing is we've been looking at that narrative with an eye out for how does this big story that God has been authoring in the Bible and authoring throughout human history, how does this story apply directly to our lives in 21st century Medina, right here in our lives? How does this message land in our laps, as it were? And so again, Our aim in this series is to kind of orient our lives and our stories to this big story of salvation that God has been authoring from the very beginning, this story that is told to us in the Bible, the story that's told to us in Scripture. And you see, we we here at Grace Church, I mean, we are so convinced that the Bible is God's word to us, that it is God's message to us about his character, who he is, his personality, his heartbeat for us, what he's doing, his activity in the world, But it also tells us a lot about who we are and what's wrong with us and how God has provided in Jesus Christ this amazing solution to reconnect in a vibrant relationship with him. And so in this series, the way we've been going about this is we have been kind of using what we might call push pins or like mile markers on the map or the chronology of this biblical storyline. And so for the past couple weeks, we've looked at the first four. So about four weeks ago, we looked at this idea that God creates. In other words, at the very beginning, the Bible tells us, God created everything that there is, humanity included, and he created everything good, everything flourishing, everything healthy. But we see sadly, and we looked at this in mile marker two, that we rebel. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis three is indicative of all our stories. That though God created us as good and designed us for relationship with himself, we break that partnership seeking autonomy and our own way instead of the good way that God has provided for us. And then we looked though and we said in week three, mile marker three, man, God does not give up on humanity in light of our rebellion. That God promises in Genesis chapter 12 that he is going to work through one man's story, this guy named Abraham, and that through that man's offspring, the nation of Israel, he is going, he's convinced, like, he is going to bring blessing and flourishing and the offer of relationship back into this world. But we see, actually, in week four, in mile marker four, we wander, that the people of the solution, right, Israel is a conduit of God's blessing to the world, the people of the solution are also the people of the problem, 
that Israel is prone to, like their great ancestors, Adam and Eve, to rebel. They're prone to wander away from this good God who offers them relationship. And so this puts us back here now today. We're going to be talking about mile marker number five in the biblical storyline. And it's this idea of God builds, okay? God builds. So what are we specifically talking about here? Well, we're talking about this. That God builds a kingdom. Or we might better say it this way, God builds his kingdom. That God ultimately over the world and everything in it because or by virtue of his creation of it, he is the king and Lord over the entire deal. But that God is interested in rebuilding, as it were, his kingdom. But that the way that God wants to do this is by partnering with a human king. That God has never been interested in doing anything in the world apart from partnering with humanity. It was the same in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's going to be the same as God rebuilds his kingship in the world. That God is going to choose one human king. And this human king is going to lead people into this restored relationship with him. So God builds his kingdom by partnering with a human king who will lead people into a restored relationship with him. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, which is the left three quarters of your Bible, you will quickly discover that the consummate or like the quintessential figure of this human kingship is this guy named David. Right, we censored this one for the kiddos a little bit. We figured we'd make fun of Grace Church rather than anything else, so there you go. So you got David here. Obviously, this is the Michelangelo statue that many of you are familiar with. But uh, King David in the Bible, his story predominantly appears in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Again, that is the left three quarters of the Bible. <clears throat> and Samuel's, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel hold the story of David. And unfortunately, while well, we're not going to have the opportunity today to comb the entirety of David's story throughout those two books, <clears throat> I'd encourage you to do that. It's phenomenal. It's chock full of good stuff. We just don't have the time or the opportunity, the bandwidth and space to be able to do that today. So what we're going to do today is we are actually going to look at a single story that occurs in the life of David. It's actually a story that occurs prior to David being officially installed as king over Israel. So this is B before kingship, BK, not Burger King, it's before kingship. So this is David before kingship, and here's what we're going to do in this story. What we're going to do is we're going to observe David's character the kind of person that David is. And we're really gonna be out to answer the question, what kind of king, what kind of man, what kind of person is God going to want to partner with? What makes David so eligible to be this partnered human king that God is gonna work through to bring about the restoration of his relationship with humanity, the restoration of relationship with his people? And we're gonna do this by looking at a story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you brought your Bibles this morning, we're going to jump right in. You can begin making your way to 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. There are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. It'll be on page <coughs> excuse me, 197 in those Bibles. And lastly, if you don't have a Bible to call your very own, just go ahead and take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Take it home with you today. Just consider it our gift to you you know, happy early, merry early Christmas or whatever that looks like, right? Okay, so we're gonna jump in. First Samuel chapter 17, and here is a story of David before his kingship. 
All right, now the Philistines, we didn't get very far. Okay, so if you uh, come to this point in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines are a group of people that are frequently at war with the nation of Israel, Abraham's offspring. They're frequently at war with the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel, and it happens quite frequently. And uh, the, the Philistines are often seen to be enslaving and overcoming the people of Israel. So here they come once again up for battle against the nation of Israel. So 1 Samuel 17, now the Philistines, they gathered their forces for war, and they assembled at Sukkah. you got to say it that way. You just have to say it that way because there's no other way to say it. So they assembled at Sukkah in Judah. Uh, they pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sukkah and uh, Azekah. <laughs> Saul, who was the existing king of Israel during this time, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. All right, so let me just give you a little bit more of the setting here and the tension that these first couple verses are actually bringing to us. So if you were to go over to the land of Israel, the nation of Israel today, you can actually go to the Valley of Elah. It is a, it is a physical spot that they have identified archaeologically. And uh, you actually, I've never been there, but you can simply Google Earth it. It's pretty cool. And so it's practically like you're there because Google Earth, Earth is awesome. But uh, the Valley of Elah is basically a thin valley that runs from west to east or east to west in this nation of Israel. And on either side of this valley are two very steep hills. So there's one on the north side, a steep hill, and one on the south side. So here's what's going on here in 1 Samuel 17, the setting, is the Philistines are encamped on the north hill, or the north side of the valley of Elah. The Israelites are encamped on the south side, the south hill of the valley of Elah. Now, if you know anything about ancient warfare and battle tactics, you know that the high ground was pivotal. The high ground was super important. So if you think about it, you got two armies on either side of a deep ditch that have the high ground. There's no way that either army is going to want to abandon their hill, go into a valley to be sitting ducks for the arrows and the infantry of the enemy, and then try to take the other hill. It's just not going to happen. So what we have here in the first couple verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17 is the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of a stalemate. And so one of the champions, one of the warriors of the Philistines is going to come down and propose a solution to this stalemate. <clears throat> a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, which is a city in Philistia, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. Think of greaves as like soccer-style shin guards for protection. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? In other words, what's the point? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul, puny little Saul? Choose a man, which is, I think this is my favorite line in all of Scripture. Because I can just imagine that Goliath is saying it like Nacho Libre, if you've ever seen it, like, Choose a man. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and you will serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. All right, so I'm going to summarize the next portion of it for you here before we hit the end. So essentially, after verse 11, everybody's freaking out in Israel. And this is where David enters onto the scene. Now, David has actually been asked by his father, Jesse, to come to the battlefront to bring bread and food and supplies to his three older brothers who are in the Israelite military at the Battle of Elah, right? Or at the Battle of Sukkah. And so David comes, and he's looking around, and he clearly notices that everyone in Israel is freaking out. So he asks around. He says, what's going on? Why are you guys so frightened? He gets the download of the challenge of Goliath, and he starts wondering, like, What's going, is, is there going to be no one to stand in front of this guy? Like, this guy is dissing not only the armies of Israel, but he's dissing our God. Is no one going to be brave and confident enough to stand in the gap and to head down into the valley to meet this guy? And he says, you know what? If nobody's going to do it, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is ridiculous. I'll do it. I'll stand. I will face the giant. Now, David says this, and his older brother Eliab comes around, and he says, listen, David, stop the pursuit of glory, okay? This is not about a pursuit of the glory, to see what it tastes like. That's another Nacho Libre reference. You should watch the movie if you haven't. But nevertheless, Eliab is like, listen, stop pursuing glory here. You are just a boy. David, you're a teenager. This is man's work. Goliath has just said, give me a man. You're just a little scrawny boy. Stop pursuing all this glory. You can't get it done. But David says, no, he insists. I'll do it. I'll stand and I'll face this giant. And eventually, David is so persistent, he gets an audience with King Saul. And King Saul basically says the same thing as Eliab. He's like, you're too young. And then in addition, he's like, David, you're just a shepherd. You're not a warrior. You're not infantry. You're not military. You're off in the field with little Bessie with your harp and lyre petting. The sheep, right? You're not going to be able to get this done, David. You're too young, and you're just a shepherd. And David says, no, I can do this. God is with me. And so eventually Saul concedes, and he's like, all right. So David goes down to a brook. He gathers five smooth stones, puts them in his shepherd's pouch, and he grabs a sling, and he heads down into the valley of Elah to take on Goliath. So meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. So Goliath sees exactly what Saul and Eliab, David's older brother, sees. Glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. So I'm not sure why Goliath despised him, whether it was because he was young or glowing with health and handsome, which, by the way, I don't know what that means, but uh, I've been known to be called glowing with health and handsome every once and again. So he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Here's this nasty rhetoric of threat of destruction. One more time issued to David. But David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. You have not just defied our armies. You, Goliath, have defied him. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. The audacity of this teenage shepherd boy. So as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and he struck the Philistine 
on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine. Look at the simplicity of this. With all the battle armaments of, of, of Goliath and all the military warfare and weaponry, David triumphs over the Philistine with a simplicity of a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, <coughs> excuse me, and he drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. All right, so my guess is that most of us uh, in this room, if not all of us in this room, have heard the story of David and Goliath before. Would you say that that's true of you? Have you heard of the story of David and Goliath before this morning? Yeah, uh, a few hands. Uh, there's probably more of you. You're just too scared to actually raise your hand. I get it, so it's not, it's not a problem. But, so we've heard the story of David and Goliath before, but many of us, when we've heard the story in the past, it's not exactly been the same version of the story that we just read. You know, the story that actually comes from the Bible. And I started to question this week, why is it? Because I grew up in church, I heard the story so many times, and the version of the story that I got was not really anything close to the version that I actually read in the scripture. So I started asking myself, why is it that I have never heard this version of the story before? And if you've never heard this kind of version, if you've heard a different one, my guess is it's because we have sometimes in Christianity, let's just be honest, we have this tendency to kind of take stories that are otherwise difficult, challenging, maybe a little hard to swallow because they've got elements and components in them that are difficult to digest. And we, do, we censor over some of these stories so that we can make them appropriate or palatable so that when we tuck our kids at bedtime, we feel comfortable in telling the story to them. And I think that not only is the story of David and Goliath this way, there are several other stories within the Bible that fit this kind of description where we censor them a little bit. How about this one? You guys know this story? What story are we talking about here? Jonah and the whale. I remember being in Sunday school and singing the song, Jonah and the whale, hidden in the deep blue sea. Ah, yeah, we, you sung it all the time. Here's the deal. If you go to the book of Jonah, which is only four chapters in the Old Testament, I would encourage you to read it after you leave here today. It's a phenomenal book. If you go to the book of Jonah and you read it, it is a terrible story all the way through. Actually, the story of Jonah ends with Jonah sitting outside the, the city of Nineveh that he was called to preach the good message of God's salvation and rescue to. He's sitting outside the city under a tree that has lost its leaves, pouting, and basically the story ends by Jonah saying, God, please just kill me. It's the story of Jonah. And yet we cartoonize the story very often. And we got Jonah over here on the left. He's in peril, but at least he's got a barrel out there. He's like, hey, dude, what's up? And then on the right, we've got a whale or a fish. But this whale does not look ominous whatsoever, does he? He's like, hey, Jonah, come on, let's go, buddy. We're going to go for a ride. I'm going to take you to Nineveh town. And we do this with things like Jonah, <laughs> but we also do it with this one, and I'm sure this one was in your heads as we started to talk about some of these things, right? Noah's Ark. Man, Noah's Ark is the imagery that we put on murals around our children's nursery room walls. We put them on mobiles, all the little animals, two by two, over our infant's cribs, right? And apparently Noah didn't just build, in this picture, an ark. Apparently he also built a wide grassy knoll and a citadel or fortress that sat on top of that grassy knoll, and somehow he was able to puke rainbows out of either side of his boat. 
But you get the point. Like, if you actually read the story of the flood in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, you discover that, like, man, you got this water down here that the boat is floating on. But what's underneath that water? That's really hard to digest. Because the flood has just wiped out everything that there is on the face of the earth. And furthermore, what little child being tucked in by mommy at night doesn't relish the thought of hearing the story about David lopping off Goliath's head with all the blood, the guts, and the gore that come from something like that. Like, night-night, little Johnny, replace the visions of sugar plums that are dancing in your head and replace it with this, right? Or at least that, right? (laughs) So here's the deal. I think sometimes the fact that we tend to smooth over some of the more difficult stories in the Bible should probably give us a clue that the most user-friendly, the most innocent, the cutest stories in the Bible may not actually be saying what we think they are saying. And maybe this is because, again, we have a difficult time with stories that challenge us or stories that are gritty and earthy. Stories that we really have to wrestle with to understand what God might be wanting to communicate to us through these stories, through his word. And listen, because we are committed in this series to lopping off the head of the giant of bad Bible interpretation, I am just going to invite you, just ask you for the next couple minutes, can we look at the story of David and Goliath with some fresh eyes? Can we do that? And my hope is, and I'm pretty confident, my hope is that we're not only going to see things, if we do, we're not only going to see things in a profoundly new way, we are also going to see how this little story that consumes merely one chapter of the great biblical narrative, points up powerfully and attests to the themes of the story that God is writing throughout the Bible, throughout human history. So that's what we're gonna do for the next couple minutes. We're gonna dive back into this story and look at it, hopefully, with some fresh eyes. So let's go back. Let's start in 1 Samuel 17, 4. All right, so we're gonna start with Goliath. We're gonna make a couple observations here. Now, the first thing that you probably notice about Goliath, even in different versions of the story that you heard, is that Goliath is a big dude. Like, Goliath is big in stature. If you were to make the conversion of his height from six cubits in a span, that would be the equivalent to over nine feet tall. Nine feet tall. And there are many scholars that believe that this is actually pointing to nine feet, nine inches. So closer to ten feet than we are to nine feet. So Goliath is a, is, is a big dude. He's big in stature. But the second thing you kind of notice from the story is that Goliath is also big in speech, isn't he? Um, now, ancient Near Eastern experts have uh, noted in this story that Goliath is very skilled in something called pre-battle rhetoric or pre- the pre-battle taunt or the pre-battle taunt song. And scholars have noted in this passage that Goliath exhibits all these qualities. Like, it was a skill and an art form that armies would train their best military soldiers in pre-battle trash talk. So, like, it was completely acceptable for a a warrior like Goliath to have a well-formulated inventory of this pre-battle trash talk. Like, hey, Michigan, why do you even field a team? We're Ohio State. And and Goliath has got this thing on lockdown, doesn't he, right? Look at this. He stands and he shouts to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? In other words, why do you even field a team? You know it's useless. You know it's pointless. You just know that you're gonna lose. So why even try? You should just wave the white flag. 
why do you come out and line up for battle? He says, am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Actually, behind this phrase, are you not a Philistine, in the original language, there is a definite article that's attached to Philistine. So what Goliath says here is, am I not the Philistine? In other words, Israel, we Philistines have conquered you time and time again. We have subjected you, we've enslaved you, we've defeated you in battle over and over and over And I am not merely a representative of that power that holds sway over your life and your nation. I am the embodiment, the epitome of the power that subjects you time and time again. So what we have here from Goliath is not just some cheap trash talk. Man, this is carefully crafted intimidation that is designed to strike fear and terror into the hearts of his opponents. And so not only is Goliath big in stature, not only is he big in speech, he's also big in strength. I got three S's in there for those of you who are taking notes, right? Stature, speech, but also in strength, right? Now, scholars have noted that the height of Goliath, six cubits in a span, is over nine feet, but that the equivalent, like if you were to uh, add up the average weight of all the implements and all the armor that Goliath has, as told in this passage, that it would weigh well over 150 pounds. Over 150 pounds. So this is guy's a big dude, and he's ominous, ominous and he's, he's a terror to the nation of Israel. But it's interesting to me, as we kind of read this story a little bit, and from verses four to seven, did you, did you notice a little bit how the narrator, as he's telling the entire story, he slows down a little bit and he gets super detailed with the description of Goliath's armor. Did you see that? And specifically, the author uses, he notes, he uses some literary device of repetition to, I think, draw our attention to something that we might otherwise miss if we're not reading carefully. So let me just ask you guys, As the narrator is describing Goliath's armor, what material is his helmet made out of? It's okay. You can say it. Bronze. Okay. All right. So how about this coat of scaly kind of armor? What's that made out of? Bronze. Okay. How about the the soccer-style greaves, the shin guards? They're bronze. Interesting. This is very interesting to me. All right. How about the javelin? It's made of bronze, right? Is there something going on here that the author is pointing us to by use of this repetition? It's very interesting. He gets super detailed. And this guy's got like, he's got the hots for bronze or something like that. I don't know. So listen, for the next couple minutes, I am just going to plead with you. I'm just going to ask you to stick with me. Because what I want to do is I want to teach you something about the Hebrew language that lies behind the English translation of this passage. Specifically the English translation of the word bronze. Now, I know that some of you are going to be tempted, maybe many of you are going to be tempted to check out here because you're like, I came to be encouraged by God's word, not get a lecture in an ancient language that doesn't exist anymore, right? And so I completely get that, but I'm going to plead with you because I think if we can, if we can kick our brains into high gear, if we can learn a little something about Hebrew, it is going to massively, my, the payoff's going to be big, I think it's going to massively change the way that you and I read this passage forever, And maybe I oversold that, okay, but I don't think so. So do I have your permission to take you to Hebrew grammar school for a couple minutes? Do I have your permission? (laughs) I got another woo. Yeah, this is a lively crowd. This is excellent. Okay, so here's the deal. Hebrew grammar school. The first thing that you need to know 
about the Hebrew language is that Hebrew is a consonantal language, a consonantal language. So you're thinking, think consonants, not vowels. It's a consonantal language. So in Hebrew, nearly every single word that you would encounter has a core three consonant root that provides its base definition and meaning, its broad definition. So we might call these three consonants a three consonantal cluster or a three consonantal core. No vowels, just three consonants. Now in Hebrew, when you begin to introduce various vowels in different ways to these three consonants or that consonantal cluster, <clears throat> the meaning is altered slightly and the broad concept of the root gets more specific. And you're like, you lost me already. So let me give you a little illustration here. All right, let's take a look at the three consonantal cluster of the Hebrew term shakan. It's sh, k, and na. Sh, k, and na. And in Hebrew, I know in English, we formulate the sh sound with an sh, two consonants, but they only had one to form that sound. So we've got sh, k, and na. Now at its base level, these three consonants, when you piece them together in that order, it simply gives you the abstract concept of to dwell, to reside, okay? You following me? You good? Okay. Now, when you begin to introduce vowels in, in various ways, the big, broad meaning gets more specific. So if you were going to introduce two ah sounds into that consonantal cluster, you'd get the word shakan, which means he dwells. Do you see how the abstract concept of dwelling is concretized? It's made specific. It's not me dwelling. It's not you dwelling. It's him. He dwells. <laughs> you slightly adjust it. You put in maybe an ah and an eh sound. It's not shaken. It's shaken. Shaken in Hebrew means neighbor. Do you see how this connects back to the consonantal root, right? Because a neighbor is one who dwells close by to you. And then another example is mishkan. So you have an I and an A, and then you also add another consonant. We don't have time to go into that here. But mishkan simply means tent. Well, how does that connect? Well, if you were an ancient Israelite, where you would live is in your tent. Your tent was your house. You see the connection? All right, so if we go back to 1 Samuel 17, specifically with the term bronze, the term that lies behind the word bronze in the original Hebrew is the word nechoshet. Nechoshet, okay? And you can already see because of the highlights that this stems from a three-consonantal cluster of the, the, the sounds n, ch, and sh. N, ch, and sh. And simply in its broadest form, n, ch, sh, means shiny. It's the abstract notion of being luminescent <coughs> or reflective. And so you can see how bronze, where they would get nechoshet and why it would be bronze. Bronze is a material that is shiny. It's a material that is highly reflective or luminescent. Now, what is fascinating to me, this is so good, this is going to be so good, I promise. What is fascinating to me is that there is another word that is used in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament with this same three consonantal cluster, the Hebrew word nachash, nachash. Now, what is nachash translated as in our English translations? It's translated as serpent, serpent. It is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter three to refer to the entity and the agent that stands in rebellion to everything that God had created good who stands in front of Adam and Eve and tempts them and accuses them and leads them into their own rebellion and destruction. 
Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the Nachash, the serpent, was more crafty than any other of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. So listen, if you are a Hebrew-speaking person and you're reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, it becomes very obvious through repetition and these connections that the author is intending to draw our attention back in the story to what really lies behind Goliath's threats and his fear-mongering. You would have known if you were a Hebrew person that this, the repetition of bronze, is a carefully crafted literary device that is intentionally used by the author to plug this individual story back into the big story of salvation and rescue that God was writing from the beginning of time. Now, I know for some of that, for some of us, this might feel like a little far-fetched, right? I can't quite see it. I think I know where you're going. But listen, I'm just telling you for a Hebrew-speaking person, this would have been obvious, And listen, now what I'm not saying is that you need to know the Hebrew language to understand the Bible with clarity. Listen, because the Bible is God's word, it is clear all the way from the child to the PhD, precisely because it is God's very message to us. And anytime God speaks to us about salvation and life with him, he's gonna do it, he's gonna meet us where we're at. What I'm not saying is that we need to know the Hebrew language, but here's what I am saying. Man, I'm saying that the more we tenaciously dig into the Bible, the more that we discover the big theme that God has been authoring all throughout the text. And man, you don't just need to see this from some Hebrew words here. There are other scholars who have pointed to this connection. The reality is, like this guy Rick Schenk, who is a professor at Bethlehem Baptist Theological Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota, look at what he says about the usage of bronze in 1 Samuel 17. He says, the bronze of the helmet of Goliath makes us wonder if that metal is merely the craftsman's material or if it shows his true colors. And then there is the coat of mail, which was described as scaly in the text. All uses of that word, scaly, in the books of Moses refer to scales like those of fish and also to those of serpents. Don't miss this next next part. Standing before the armies of God, the armies of Yahweh, we have Goliath of the Nechoshet team playing for the Nachash. Here, the bronze serpent, like Goliath's armor looks serpentine. Here, the bronze serpent defies the armies of Yahweh just in the same way as he attacked Eve and Adam long ago in Genesis 3 with lies and with threats. And we are invited to call out as a result of this, where is the seed that is going to destroy the work of this serpent in the world? How long, O Lord, until you send a deliverer for us? Guys, I just don't want you to miss this. In 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is cast as the latest installment of the serpent's rebellion that threatens God's plan of rescue for humanity. And and there are not only striking similarities in the verbal or the word structures, there are striking similarities in the attitude and the rhetoric of Goliath and the serpent back in Genesis 3. When Goliath, in verse 8, stands and shouts (coughs) to the ranks of Israel, he says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? We've already drawn this out. 
Goliath, in his rhetorical prowess, says, you're just going to lose. Why are you even coming against these armies, Israel? You're hopeless. It's a foregone conclusion. Do you see the fatalism in Goliath's rhetoric here? And as I was thinking about this week, thinking about this and studying it this week, I was just reminded of all the times, even in my own life, where maybe I'm tempted by something that's in front of me. And there's a part of me that wants to do right by God and wants to obey his voice and to resist temptation. But I don't know about you guys, if you've ever had this, I think you have, right? You get into that moment of temptation and then there's that little voice inside your head that says, you're just gonna do it anyway. You might as well give in. You're gonna lose. It's inevitable. It's a foregone conclusion. Let me just ask you guys, where do you think that voice comes from? It's team serpent. It's the Nachash. Deceiving you. We see the parallels here that this is the serpent's tactics. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, as he's tempting Eve. He says, God knows that when you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that you're not supposed to eat, he knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that word when there. The serpent gets in Eve's ear and he says, you're just gonna do it anyway. You're gonna eat of the tree. So why don't you just do it now? It's a foregone conclusion. So we have to see here that Goliath, though as a historical figure in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath represents team serpent, team serpent, he is representing the great deceiver who harasses humanity and deceives them into rebellion against God. So then in contrast, we have David in the story of 1 Samuel 17. If Goliath represents team serpent, Goliath, uh, sorry, David represents the leader for team God. And look at this. In the, in the face of the absurd, it's absurd, the absurd fear-mongering of Goliath, David resolutes, resolutely plants his trust, his hope, and his confidence in God and in God alone. He stands firm, not in his own power or in his own might. He stands firm in God's protection and his provision. Look at this. David says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, you've defied him. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I will cut off your head. David's confidence should remind us of Genesis chapter three. It's the reversal of Eve and Adam's rebellion. Eve and Adam give in. David plants his trust and his confidence firmly in the provision of God and his word to resist the temptation to abdicate against the armies of the enemy, right? And we can see that if you look at Genesis chapter three, verse 15, in the aftermath of humanity's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God issues a promise that is strangely familiar to some of the things that David says in 1 Samuel 17. God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, Nachash, and the woman, and Eve. What is more enmity than you come against me and I come against you? There's gonna be a battle. There's gonna be a war. There's gonna be an enduring conflict. 
And God says, here's what's going to happen. This enmity is going to be between your offspring and hers. Though you, Nachash, though you, serpent, are going to deal a mortal wound to the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to crush your head once and for all. And David says to the representative of Team Serpent, I'm going to strike you down by virtue of my confidence in God. And I am going to cut off your head. Man, what an example of godly leadership that David exhibits here, right? Because David, in fighting the battle, roots his confidence in the Lord. And he also doesn't use the weapons of death and destruction, the weapons of his enemy, the weapons of Goliath, the weapons of the Nachash against the threat. David does not fight fire with fire in 1 Samuel 17. And notice when David is armed for combat, look what he does. Saul attempts to dress David in his own tunic. Saul puts a coat of armor on him and what kind of helmet? A bronze helmet on his head. <clears throat> David fastens the sword, the weapon of death and destruction. He fastens it over the tunic and he tries walking around because they weren't, it wasn't his armor, he wasn't used to them. And then look what David says. He says, I can't, I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. This phrase, I'm not used to them in the original language, probably communicates more this idea like, this is not the right way to go about this fight. This is not gonna work. I can't do this this way. So what does David do? He took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, a shepherd's staff, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Guys, this is so great. I mean, David is not going to fight with the military weaponry of his enemy. Instead, David chooses and uses shepherd's implements, a sling, a stone, a staff in his hand, and these are tools that are designed to fend off attackers of sheep. Guys, these are tools that are designed to protect and to save. To protect sheep from the threat of things like wolves and snakes. And what David does, man, he lays down the weapons of aggression. The one, for ones that are designed to protect and save. And so supremely, David shows us in this story that the true leader of God's people, the true king, is characterized by these two things. Salvation through sacrifice. Salvation through sacrifice. Because David is willing to raise his hand and go down into the valley of Elah. He's willing to give himself up on behalf of his nation, on behalf of the sheep. It just makes you wonder if this episode was not in David's head when he writes in the Psalms, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. God's rod and his staff are the things that comfort me. So David lays these things down and he shows us that true kingship, true leadership is salvation through sacrifice. 
And so with all of this in mind, we look at the story and we read it and we may, might start to think, oh man, you know, David is the, the fulfillment, the, the be all end all of the, 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 the prediction in Genesis chapter 3, 15. David is, is gonna be the one to crush the head of the serpent once or, and once and for all. God's people are finally going to be free of the fear-mongering of Goliath and the temptation and the deceit and the destruction of the real enemy, the devil, the Nachash, the serpent. And we might be led to believe that David is the fulfillment of that prediction, of that prophecy. And yet we discover, if we continue on in David's story, <clears throat> that David himself succumbed to his own rebellion. That David wandered away from the provision and the protection of his God. That David, too, destroyed the relationship that was offered to him. To be God's king, to lead God's people. And so because David failed, right, we see stories like later in 2 Samuel. Man, David sends one of, as, when David's king, David, David sends one of his best military men out to the front lines of the battle intentionally so that he can get this guy killed because he wants this guy's wife. And oh, by the way, he has already impregnated her. Much later as David is old, the same David who laid down the tools of aggression in favor of the confidence and the protection of his God, that same David is gonna be very interested in counting up how many chariots he has, how many infantry he has, the number of people in his nation, the number of swords and spears, and he's going to glory in his military might. And so, in this story, 1 Samuel 17, while we see that David is a serpent crusher, he is not the serpent crusher. And this reality, this fact, led Israel's prophets who came after David to write about, to anticipate and long for a coming son of David, one from David's line, who would finally crush the serpent's work in the world forever. And let me just dispense with the suspense. I got no clever ploy, no trick up my sleeve. When you get to the New Testament, it becomes obvious. Guys, Jesus is the serpent crusher. Jesus Christ is the serpent crusher. We don't need to go far in the New Testament to ratify this and see that it's so true. Jesus is the true king. He's the true leader. He's the true shepherd to which David pointed. Look at just a smattering of texts from the New Testament. 1 John 3, 8. <laughs> the reason the Son of God, now Son of God was a phrase that was used by the Israelites to refer to their king. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to what? To destroy the devil's work. To crush the head of the serpent with all his fear-mongering threats and tactics and the weapons of death that he wields over us. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Colossians 2.15, how does Jesus destroy the devil's work? Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, these powers and authorities are the devil and all his agents, 
He made a public spectacle of them. He made a laughing stock of them. How did he do this? How did he triumph? He triumphed over them, not by taking up a sword and using the weapons of death against death, but by assuming the consequences of our sin, by assuming death on himself at the cross. And right there, he crushed the serpent's head. He triumphs over the devil at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest triumph of all the things and all the clouds of death and destruction that are constantly over our heads. John 10, 14. Jesus says it himself, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And what? He says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Salvation through sacrifice. Guys, here's the deal. Here's the point. Here's what I have for you. It might sound super simplistic, but it's what I believe is here, and it's what I believe the big story of Scripture is communicating to us this morning, is that we all need a rescue from the disease of sin and death. That every one of us in this room and in the world needs a leader who can show us what being God's people really looks like. Not by leveraging the weapons of the enemy, but by offering ourselves as a rescue, salvation through sacrifice. That Jesus rescues us through sacrificial love. Guys, we need an example who can give us the power of his spirit to live the kind of life that he lived so that we can expand the good rule and reign and the kingdom of God in our world today and offer a hope of life forever to people who need it. This is it. If you hear nothing else, please know this. Guys, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Guys, we need Jesus, the freedom from sin, from death, and Satan can only come when we align our lives and our agendas with his world-transforming power. And so in the end, in the story of David and Goliath, it's not just a cute little children's tale. It points to something bigger. It's not just a cute little children's tale. And neither is the story of David and Goliath. Goliath doesn't just symbolize like David's problems, right? I've heard this uh, frequently. Like, like maybe David was struggling financially or uh, he had a bad row or a, a fight with his girlfriend and he just needed to muster up a little bit more courage to face the giants in his life, right? And neither is David a symbol for the power of positivity, Man, with as much gentleness and compassion as I possibly can muster, you are not David in this story. I am not David in this story. Guys, you want to know who we are in this story? We are the Israelites cowering in fear at the threat of death that is like a dark cloud that hangs over every one of our lives. Jesus is the son of David who came to obliterate the Goliath of sin and death in our lives, to cut that thing off at its head so that we might go free. And so then if Goliath is not my problems, if I'm not David, 
You might be like, well, we're in a series called You Are Here. We said that this has direct application to our everyday lives. So what's the payoff? What's the takeaway? And again, maybe this is just too simple, but I think this is exactly what 1 Samuel 17 is communicating and what the entire story of Scripture is telling us. That if you are not a follower of Jesus, or if you are a follower of Jesus, and everywhere in between, you need Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and you need him, you need him to open up the floodgates of the life that God has always desired for you. And Jesus opens up the gates of his kingdom freely. And the Bible repeatedly says that you can embrace that kind of life to follow the true king. It is simply embraced by faith. Laying the entire weight of who you are in trust that Jesus has done it, that he has won the decisive victory over sin, death, and Satan. And that you can experience the kind of life God desires for you right now. And then also, <coughs> if you're a Christ follower, the message is the same. We need to be regularly reminded that we need Jesus. We didn't just need Jesus when we accepted him into our hearts. Which, by the way, I know what we mean by that phrase when we say I accepted Jesus into my heart. But I struggle with that sometimes because when we invite Jesus into our heart, that means that we are inviting Jesus into our kingdom. And if we invite Jesus into our kingdom, that means that we are still on the throne. And if we're still on the throne, that makes Jesus, at best, just an advisor in our lives. Instead, Jesus says, man, I, I don't just want to come be an advisor in your kingdom. I'm opening up the gates daily for you to participate in the reality of the life that is my kingdom. You've been invited. And so maybe, regardless of where you're at, maybe today it is the right time to just give Jesus all that you are, to just make the decision. The man, Jesus, you're not just gonna be a part of my life. I'm going to be a part of the life that you give in your kingdom as you lead me out of sin, as you lead me out of death and into the life that you desire. Maybe today for us, it's just time to put a stake in the ground and give him everything that we are. Let's pray together. <coughs> Jesus, we just want to say thank you for who you are and your leadership and your kingship and the fact that you would leave the comforts of heaven to descend in the valley of our humanity, to come and to take our place on the cross, to assume the consequences of our sin, to die the death that we could not die so that you would open up your kingdom to us so that we could buy into your agenda by faith and we could find the freedom of life, freedom from death, freedom from Satan, freedom from all the attacks and the threats and the threats and the temptation in our lives. Jesus, we just confess that you're it. You're the true king. And we confess today that we need you. We need you for everything good and perfect that God wants to do in our lives. So God, I'm just asking that as we sing together these songs of worship, Jesus, about who you are, as we shine the spotlight on you afresh, Jesus, I pray that you would move our hearts by your spirit to just sing these lyrics loudly, to be filled with the joy of knowing that you've done it, that you've won the victory, and that we can 
grab a hold of you in relationship by faith and that you can lead us back into that restored relationship with God. Jesus, we thank you. And we just confess right now our need for you. And we say it all in your name. Amen.